Um, we're in Matthew chapter 5 today. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to just look at a few verses, three verses, three of them, but they're packed. Uh, there's plenty to say. They're packed with, um, with nutrients for us. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll launch into this. Jesus, I, am one, I want to follow you. I, I feel in my deepest, truest self of who I am, a, I resonate with you. I still hear your call today. I still hear you when I come across certain stories that move me in the way, in your way, or when I watch a film that has certain themes that are your themes in them, or, or when I listen to a song, or when I see someone else's life that's inspiring, there's a, there's a deep part of me that says, that's what I was made for. That's who I was made for. And so we're bringing our deepest selves to you this morning. We're, we're trying to access that real Imago day inside, that ancient part of us inside that's that is being formed into your image. Would you help us hear your voice this morning, please? Would you help us follow after you? Would you give us courage? And would you give us minds to understand what you say? Because quite frankly, Jesus, you are brilliant. Your, what you say on this hill is so profound and so relevant to us today. But our minds sometimes are not trained or up to the task of, of hearing what you're saying. So would you just give us that ability to understand and comprehend, conceive of these ideas and help us to get this balance right. Guide us now, please, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, due, due to the holiday season, we've taken a break from the book of Matthew and today we're returning to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And something that's important as we're kind of going to get a running start into this to refresh our minds about what the Sermon on the Mount is and how we should look at it, what we should read about it. I was thinking about this this weekend. Uh, there's something that's, I think, really vital for us to understand kind of practically about the Sermon on the Mount. And that is um, whether this was given by Jesus in one sitting or this is kind of Matthew's collection of his most famous sayings. Scholars are divided on this. Either way, wherever you land on that, Matthew has arranged this material to be read as if it is a one talk, one sermon. In other words, it is the reason it's been called a sermon is because it's very sermon-esque. It has one theme, and if you can understand that theme, you can understand how the sermon flows together. And that's really important to respect it the way Matthew has written it because um, we can do a lot of damage if we look at the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a grab bag of different, uh, of, of Jesus' famous hits or some of his famous lines or kind of like, you know, fortune cookie sayings of Jesus. We can kind of really do some abuse if we lift some words out of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I just want you to keep that in mind. Um, let me show you how to outline this and we'll, out, we'll go forward to where we're at today. Um, in chapter four, Jesus proclaims that in him, the kingdom of heaven is now accessible. Okay? And it's, a, and it's accessed by this invitation. How do we access it in you, Jesus? He says, come follow me right? This is, he's inviting us to become his students, his disciples, his mathetes. The word Christian, just so you know, is only used three times in the New Testament, all derogatory. All is kind of a, oh, you're a wannabe savior. Oh, you're a, you're a, you're trying to be Jesus. Oh, you're, you're one of those people, right? Eventually, Christians said, sure, we'll take that. We'll identify as that. That's fine. But overwhelmingly in the New Testament, how Christians identified themselves overwhelmingly was this word, mathetes, where followers were disciples of Jesus. And that really, really encapsulates what it means to be a Christian. We are following the way 
of Jesus because we believe his way is the way to interact with this kingdom he talked about, um, to breathe that kind of air, to become, to reach our fullest potential, okay? And he's walking around and he's proclaiming this um, to anybody. That's what made him kind of a different kind of a rabbi. Back in those days, rabbis were very selective. But here's Jesus, this teacher, who's really making this available to anybody. He's saying, anybody, follow me. And by the time we get to the uh, end of chapter four, he's got some fishermen in tow, but he's got this entire crowd that's out following him. And the demographic of this crowd are people that were normally not picked to be disciples by prominent or any rabbi, really. We're talking about poor people, disenfranchised people, oppressed people, really poor people, not just poor economically, but poor spiritually. These are people that are, no one would care what they think about God. No one would go to them and say, hey, what do you think about, they're, they're, they don't go to synagogue regularly. They're illiterate. They, don't, they can't read, okay? Those are the kinds of people that we're talking about. People that uh, the Jewish world and the Roman world really don't care about very much. These are the people that are coming out and, and heeding this call to follow Jesus. So Jesus, he sees these crowds in chapter five. He goes up on a mountain, which let's be real, more of a hill. You know, we have mountains here, proper mountains here. They, did, they have more hills. He goes up, he sits down, and he starts teaching them about this kingdom. And that is the theme of this entire sermon. You have to keep that in your mind. The theme that runs throughout is the kingdom of God. If you don't understand this and keep it in mind, you're gonna miss and even misinterpret the entire sermon on the mount. And people have and are doing that on this day in churches across our land. I'm not trying to be proud and say we've got it all handled. I'm just saying, in my opinion, this is the way to make this make sense and keep it together, okay? Jesus is all about the kingdom of God, and this is the thread that stitches the fabric of this sermon together, so to speak. You take that thread out, and it will fall apart into a grab bag of many different things. For example, let me just show you. His opener, his opener is to pronounce the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, that they're here, and they've been, it's been granted to them. To who? Well, to this crowd that's before him who are poor, who are uneducated, who are disabled, basically spiritually illiterate people, blessings, hey, you're in the right place at the right time because it's been granted to you that first the kingdom of God would come to you first. You're, you are, you happen to be, Makarios, congratulations, you're here and God has chosen you of all people that the kingdom of God would come to you first. And then um, he goes on to say, and who are you? He gives them an identity. Who are you? You may be poor, you may be broken, you may be nobodies, but in my kingdom, that no longer defines you. Those things no longer defines you. He would say, you know what I see? Jesus says to this crowd, I see the light of the world, that's what I see. I see the salt of the earth. You're here and you're on mission and your light and your character that I'm gonna teach you, that I'm gonna show you is gonna be so impactful, it's gonna turn this world upside down. It's gonna be a light to the people around that say, okay, that's what it means to be human. They're gonna see the works that you do, the way that you live, the way you conduct yourself, and the quality of character behind those works that it's gonna be like a light shining in the darkness. That's what it's gonna be like. And then we come to our section today where Jesus is going to explore and describe the character of his kingdom people and the results of that character. He's gonna show us the whole point behind it. I'll stop there but I need you to see how this all flows together. Are you seeing how there is a coherent um, rhythm and flow to this entire sermon around the kingdom of God? And from this point of view, you'll, you'll be able to understand the passages that are gonna come in the next six weeks at our, here at our church. So let's jump in. Let me read this to you. This, we're just gonna cover verses 17 
through 20. And it's so, this is really the thesis of the entire sermon. At least, I think so. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, here we go. Uh, Now, this passage before us, it's really key to understand. That's why we're just gonna stop here today because this is, in my opinion, and arguably the thesis of this great sermon, of this entire sermon on the kingdom of God and what it means to be a people who are being formed by the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? This is a thesis about how people in the kingdom of God are being formed And into what are they being formed? First of all, the term the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That might be kind of a foreign term to us. That's not what really, we don't say that. Um, But in order to understand it, you have to think like a Jewish person, okay? The term the law and the prophets became a kind of shorthand for what you and I call the entire Old Testament, okay? Okay. To a Jewish person, scripture or the law and the prophets was divided into three, two or three main groups. There's the law or Torah, what us Christians call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of your Bible or the words of uh, the teachings of Moses. And then there's the prophets, which include historic books like Joshua, um, you know, Joshua, Judges, uh, first and second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all of those things, and what we would think of as the actual prophets, you know, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, those guys, okay? And then finally, there's a group that Jesus doesn't mention here that was called the writings, or this is the wisdom literature, the Psalms and Proverbs and those types of things. But all of this was encapsulated in the term, the law and the prophets or the scriptures. That's what, they, what Jesus is talking about. Now, to the Jewish mind, Torah, again, the first five books of your Bible, what we would call the Pentateuch, is the most, in a sense, is the most important part of Scripture in the sense that they're considered original and the complete word of God originally given to Moses himself, okay? That they are, they are the, the foundation, so to speak. The whole house of Scripture is very important. The entire house is important, but just like any house, the foundation is very important. You know what I'm saying? It's where everything else stands. So the Torah, you can think of it as bedrock, as the foundation that the rest of Scripture is founded upon. And the prophets were and are, they're still the word of God in the Jewish person's mind, absolutely inspired by God, but there's nothing new there in the prophets. In other words, in the prophets, the prophets is a a reiteration or a retelling or a reapplying of Torah to a new situation or a new scenario or a new historic context or a new place in time like perhaps Babylon or the prom, uh, Palestine or coming back to Palestine. So the prophets retell, reapply, and the prophets show this is how this applies to now, okay? Really important for us to understand. So a prophet is actually someone who doesn't just all of a sudden come under some spell and say some random stuff. That's not how it works. The prophets are saying, actually, this is how Torah, the words of Moses, apply to Babylon and apply to you, king, and apply to you, leaders, and apply to what's going on right now. Really important. They're actually based on and founded on the law. Now, our translation, the law, 
I think is kind of an unfortunate translation for us, for our context. Because when we think of the law, we think of like external rules, like we think of, you know, like um, speed limit signs, right? We think of, um, you know, it's like social, ethical, behavioral, external kinds of laws. But the word Torah actually literally means, is literally translated into the instructions or the teachings, the instructions of Moses or the teachings of Moses. And that's a much better translation because it gets at the heart of what Torah actually is. They are instructions from God on how to be human. That's what, it's wisdom literature. It's wisdom literature. It is ancient and timeless wisdom literature and it's, it's at its core, it's intended to shape human beings in this fullest potential. So according to the Bible, you are all becoming all the time. Keep that in mind. The Bible looks at humans as not some static um, or, or uh, you know, plateaued people kind of cemented in, but always becoming, always being influenced, always growing, oh, like a plant, always growing, always producing, always changing, always moving. And therefore, um, Torah is meant to shape you and to, put, and to form you kind of as a gardener would would kind of train a vine to go a certain way. That's the idea. That's a metaphor used in the Old Testament. That's what Torah is for. Now, embedded within Torah, certainly there are ethical, civil, societal rules that ancient Israel was to follow in their ancient context. And in other words, the way Torah applied to, the, to ancient Israel and their context looks, can look different than how it would apply today or how it would apply in other contexts. But the spirit behind Torah is there. Overwhelmingly, the majority of, the majority of Torah is in the form of a story it's the story of Yahweh forming a people through instructions derived from his very own character so that he can be with those people and love them. I know that was a mouthful, but that's what they're for. They're instructions derived from Yahweh's own character to form a people that he can actually dwell with and love. That's the idea. And it's about forming a people that would show the rest of the world what kind of people they could be if they were with God people. Okay, this is, if you want some places to look, this is Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, do these things so that the nations around will go, wow, those people dwell with God. That's the only explanation for their behavior and the way they are. They, God is in their midst, Okay. And as we said earlier, this was the foundation of all Jewish life and culture. So what did Jesus have to say about this? This is basically Jesus' take on the Old Testament. What, did Jesus, what does Jesus think about the Bible? Keep in mind, um, in Jesus' day, they did not have, like, the Bible that's in front of you, they didn't have this. They had, it wasn't in like a codex the way it is now. They had to go, if they wanted to read something, they had to go to synagogue. They had to ask for a certain scroll, the scroll of Jeremiah. And typically, if they, if they were literate, that um, they could read it, or, but most were illiterate. They had to have it read to them, okay? So it was very oral tradition, transcribed, and that's why we have so many copies of copies of copies of copies of copies because people, scribes, were writing it down meticulously, writing it down, making perfect copies. If it wasn't perfect, they'd tear it up and start again. Every time they got to the word Yahweh, they would stop writing, turn aside and wash their hands and go through a ceremony and write Yahweh every time. Meticulous, meticulous paid attention to these scrolls. That was the Bible in Jesus' day. What did he think about that? Well, today he's going to tell us. First of all, he's going to tell us that they're unfinished. The Old Testament is unfinished in a way. Let me read it to you. This is verse 17. We'll just, go, we'll just do this Calvary Chapel style, line by line. Do not think that I have come to abolish, that's um, katalisai in the Greek, 
the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, or plerosi. That's our Matthew's favorite word, plero is the noun, plerosi is the verb. I've come to plerosi them, I've come to fulfill them. So apparently here, Jesus knew that his own lifestyle and teaching and the style and teaching of his movement would give people the impression that he had come to get rid of the law and the prophets. Okay? The word katalusai in the Greek means to uh, abolish an institution. Or yeah, Matthew will, lose, will use it later to tear down a building. That's how he uses it. To, it also can mean to loosen or disobey something. To disobey, to go against something, to rebel against it. Jesus makes it clear that he's not here to do that. This would have been um, disappointing to Jesus' um, theological progressives of his day that we're all about, let's just get rid of the law of Moses, let's put a period on that, now it's time for something new. Um, there are some people that would have taken Jesus' style of abolishing the law and said, this is good. Jesus sets them straight here. He says, nope, I'm not getting rid of the law or the prophets. But notice that Jesus doesn't land squarely in the conservative camp either. What's the opposite of abolishing something or disobeying something? It would be to obey, right? But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to disobey the law. I've come to obey it. I've come to keep the status quo. I've come to keep it. He doesn't say that. Instead, he uses the word um, fulfill them. And I've come to fulfill them. In Jesus' mind, the law and the prophets, even with the rise of these hyper-meticulous obedience movements with the Pharisees and, the, and the, uh, the scribes that were just meticulous about obeying every part of the law, Jesus says it still has not been fulfilled. It's unfulfilled at this point, okay? Put simply, Jesus is saying that obeying something and fulfilling something is not the same thing. I think, this is, I think as we keep going, you'll see how practical this actually is. It's profound, and yet you'll go, oh yeah, that's probably true, right? You can obey something and not fulfill the spirit behind it. You can do something and still have still have hatred and evil and all sorts of horrible things going on in your heart, okay? So to obey it is not to fulfill it. He's saying, I've come to, to fulfill it. To Jesus, the law and the prophets, down to the smallest stroke of a pen, and even mankind's failure to keep them, are signposts pointing to a time, his time, where the true Torah of God what it means to be the ideal human, is being filled up in himself. He's saying, I'm actually, I mean, it's a bold claim. I'm actually the living embodiment. I am, I am filling up every stroke, every dot, every slightest thing of the law is being fulfilled in my person and in my kingdom. I'm not just obeying it, I'm fulfilling it, okay? So first of all, they're unfinished, I've come to finish them. They're unfulfilled. I've come to fulfill them. Secondly, the law and the prophets are eternal, according to Jesus. They're not going anywhere. This is very important for us to understand. Verse 18 says, for truly I tell you, um, this is, uh, let's see if I can remember, if I can remember this. For truly I tell you, that's um, amen, truly, I tell you, lego yamin, I tell you. This is one of Jesus' famous, this is a Jesus line. He became famous for saying, truly I tell you this. And this was his way of saying, listen, what I'm about to say is not up for debate. I'm not gonna compromise on this one. This is gonna be, listen up. This is a non-negotiable for me as, as, as the king of heaven, as Jesus here. Okay, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, that means never, because heaven's not going anywhere, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, like a seraph, nothing will, be, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. According to Jesus, the Old Testament story and wisdom is not going anywhere, it is eternal, 
Jesus is not saying that heaven and earth will pass away when these things are fulfilled. Like once everything's accomplished, now we can just throw it up and do it away. Instead, Jesus is, is most likely saying that the fulfillment of the Old Testament is what fulfills reality, is the fabric that's holding heaven and earth together. You could say Torah and the spirit of it in Jesus' mind is the, is the matrix behind it all, is what's keeping everything together. In other words, the day there's not a universe is the day that there is, the day there's nothing, the day everything's destroyed is the day there is no God anymore. This is the very character of God holding and creating reality. The law and the prophets are the fabric of reality itself in Jesus' Jesus's mind. So many people, and I have to clarify this, because many people have <clears throat> essentially taught that the Old Testament is now irrelevant because of Jesus. Or they've given that very strong impression. Maybe you grew up in that kind of a tradition of Christianity. That the law was actually only, um, it was the only purpose was to show you how bad you are. I've heard that this is how I grew up. I grew up in a tradition that said, the law is actually, Mike, just to abolish your pride, to make you stop depending on yourself because you can't do it. Like, no one can do it. So it's basically to say, whoa, I can't do this. There must be another way. And good news, Jesus is here. And he's gonna do it for you. So, so and if you depend on him, he died on the cross for all the stuff you've done wrong for all the, the parts of the law that you couldn't keep. And if you depend on him, you get to go to heaven. So now, you don't have to worry about the, those things. Are, it's old. It's called the old covenant for a reason, right? The Old Testament for a reason. We don't need it anymore. As long as you get the lesson that you're supposed to be humble now, then we're good. We can move on. That's kind of the impression that I grew up. Now listen, the law is indeed, now let me show you the truth behind this. The law is indeed, absolutely, one of the purposes of the law is used to show us how sinful we are. Totally, yes. Yes, that is, that is partially true. And certainly it makes us grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Certainly it makes us that way. But the law is also the tenor and character of God himself. And as such, it is... It is the human ideal of character and flourishing and real living. It is a good thing. Let me read this to you. This is, um, this is Psalm 119. Look, look, look at how um, the writer of Psalm 119 looks at the law. Let me just read a few passages to you. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. We know this word blessed, happy, right? Happy, in the Greek, it would be the word makarios. It wouldn't be the theologically heavy word for blessed. It would be like, hey, you're living the good life. You're, the good life is for those whose way is blameless, who walk in the, that's our word, Torah of the Lord. In other words, this isn't just drab rules. He's celebrating these. These are awesome, he's saying. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. The law has always been aiming for the human heart. Okay? Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not, do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. That would be Torah. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight in these things. As much in, uh, more than all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Okay, you guys. Um, I'm trying to give you a shameless plug for Torah, for the law, because here's the thing. Our culture 
um, I think does a really bad job of teaching us how to live. What does it mean to live good? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to flourish? What is life all about? Go on the internet. Google cannot, they'll give you a ton of, you know, AI will give you a lot of answers. But, you know, I'll tell you what, the Bible for, for thousands of years has been giving instructions, Torah, on how to live a flourishing, wonderful life to the point where the psalmist rejoices. He says, thank you for your instructions. Their life, it's morrow and health to my soul. And look, it's eternal. Let me read, um, let's see, where is that? Psalm 119, I think it's, let's see, is it 89? I think it is. Yeah, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast on your law. It's like this is the fabric of reality. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for, my, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your way. Do you see what he's saying here? When I was a, a kid growing up in my kind of Christian uh, sliver of, of the world, this really confused me. I remember reading Psalm 119 and going, I don't feel, how, I don't understand why he's so excited about rules. Because I grew up learning that these rules were just rules because we did bad stuff and so God had to rein us in and now it's to prove that we're sinners and now Jesus is here so we can kind of discard them and not worry about them very much. Our culture is going that way. Now we, we have taken the Ten Commandments out of our 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 institutions, and to be quite frank, we don't really know them that well here at our churches either because we don't regard them as wise. We regard them as rules. We don't regard them as instruction on how to live a good life. Jesus says they're not going anywhere. As long as there is a universe, there will be Torah, okay? Thirdly, he says, they are the outward manifestation of the character of the people in his kingdom. Look at verse 19. It says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices, we, learned, we ran into that word in 2 Peter last week. That's poieo, ongoing practicing something. We're all you are all poeoing something, some things. You are who you are because of what you practice, okay? Um, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here, the natural question to ask before we really dive into this is which commandments is Jesus talking about here? He says these commandments. Notice he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments, scholars have asked, is he talking about Torah, the commandments of Moses, or is he talking about the commandments that he's going to give in this manifesto of his, of his new kingdom? And the answer is yes. Yes to both. Because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching the Old Testament. It's his the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' way of reading the Bible. So what he's actually saying here, whoever doesn't read the Bible like me, whoever relaxes my way of reading the Old Testament will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So notice there's this, there's this correlation. There's this parallel to your growth and your development to how you think of and treat the Bible. Okay? Whoever relaxes, that's what the word least, whoever relaxes or loosens one of even the least of these, of my take on the Bible, so whoever said, like, explains it away 
or reads it over real quick or maybe uses some kind of theological gymnastics to get around it, to say that, to blunt the edge of it, to say that it doesn't apply anymore, to say that, oh, the Old Testament is old. It does Any of that, you will be called, you will stub your own potential. You will be called least. You won't be able to follow me very well in this new kingdom that I'm coming that I'm bringing, that is here, that is accessible. However, if you practice these things, and that you, in other words, you take it really seriously. You reorient and reorganize your entire life about, around what I'm going to say to you on this, on this day, in this sermon. If you actually take it seriously and change things about your life and start practicing new ways, and then once you get some of those things down, you start helping others do the same teaching others. You become a mentor and you start teaching, building a community here. You will be called great in the kingdom of God. Do you see what I'm saying? This goes back to what I was saying. If you're wondering what we are about here at Calvary Wallingford, we are about following Jesus, reorganizing, reorienting our entire lives around his way of reading the Bible. Not just listening and believing, but doing, changing, Reorienting, organizing, structuring our lives around this, but in 2024 in Seattle. That's what, it, that's what it is. So that we can grow and reach our fullest potential. Now, um, we get to the really ominous line in verse 20. It's super scary. <laughs> For I tell you, that is, that's that word again. I'm not budging on this. Lego, lego hamin. There that, um, uh, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of Torah, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world? Okay, he just took this to the next level. This is something that if you're following Jesus, this is something that your rabbi is saying, this is a non-negotiable, you won't come in unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Yikes. What is he saying here? Well, first of all, let me start with the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees are people within Judaism of Jesus' day who were experts in interpreting and teaching Torah, and they taught people how to understand it full time. This was their full-time job, okay? We have, I mean, you know, we have people like that today, people who are uh, trained and expected to be able to teach the Bible to us. People, we have jobs, we have to go to work, we have to do these things, but there's other people that get paid to know what this is saying, right? That's, that's what's going on here at the, at the, uh, at, at the basic level here. And these um, are people that honestly have gotten a really bad reputation in the Christian world of today. People have taught that Pharisees and scribes are these kind of stupid, crusty, old, rule-following religious policemen who walk around and yelling at everyone when they didn't do something right. Like they're these stuffy old guys that say, ah, you didn't do that right. Or, oh, what are you doing that right? You know, and we get that impression because Jesus is quite frequently at odds with them over certain things. But... Um, you need to understand, we now know that, that, that that's an actual misread. They're actually were extremely intelligent people. Very, very smart. And they were not um, looked down upon. They were actually highly respected in that culture. And they weren't ex- respected just because they followed rules. They were respected because of their passion for meticulous following of God. We would look at some, like a Pharisee today, if we didn't know they were a Pharisee, we would look at them and we would likely admire their zeal. As Christians, we would say, wow, you are next level. You're taking this stuff seriously. Wow, you are, you are, you are following God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You get up at five in the morning and you read and you pray and then you teach others to do the same. Oh, and we would look up to these people. That's, what, that's what's going on here. So Jesus, what he's saying here is not a dig at the Pharisees and the scribes to make his crowd roll their eyes and laugh. Like, oh, the righteousness of the scribes. No, this would have been shocking to Jesus' crowd. 
Again, let's start at the beginning. Jesus puts this crowd around him that are filled with poor, illiterate folk, right? And he says, Makarios, the kingdom of heaven is for you. It's for you. And now he says, and by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds those people, those full-time religious, zealous people that you admire, you're not, you can't make the team. That's what, that's what would have happened here. This would be like saying, hey, um, you want to be on my team, you've got to, you've, your ball-playing skills have got to exceed that of Michael Jordan or you're not going to make the cut. We would be like, okay. I mean, you can feel the, the energy in the crowd. You can feel a hush come over him when he said this ominous phrase. Oh, man, maybe I'm not, maybe this isn't my lucky day after all. Maybe I'm not able to do any of this. But what is he saying? Okay, to make sense of this, we have to understand that Jesus is talking about the idea of righteousness on an entire different level. Um, so allow me, if you would, I'm asking your permission, a few minutes to get nerdy. Let me just nerd out for a few minutes. It is helpful. It's not just for funsies. I think it's fun, but it also gets right, right at the heart of this. The word righteousness is the word dikaiosune in the Greek. And in the Greek, it was a very important term in both Hellenistic and classical circles of Greek philosophy and thought. It had to do with looking for something deeper in the human life that led to true flourishing. It was the Greeks and in around the Mediterranean world that were looking long before Jesus, that were looking for what does it mean to live? How, what does it mean to live a good life? And the search for something deeper like this um, started around the fifth century BC and maybe even earlier. And it was a worldwide topic, but nowhere had, any, had anything been written as deeply or as, as in depth as the Jewish Old Testament prophets like Amos, Isaiah, those guys, um, Micah, guys like that. Its first thorough systematic kind of treatment, like put down in philosophical thought by the powers of human reason was in the book uh, by Plato, Plato's Republic, or also uh, you could translate that as The Cities by Plato. This book basically is an exploration of the human soul and what it means to be human and how we flourish as humans. How are we unique as humans and how can we grow as humans? So ancient stuff. Um, and Plato called this inner condition of the soul in his book, Dikaiosune. It became, a, it became kind of like a, a hashtag. It became a bumper sticker. What is dikaiosune? In other words, what's the secret to good living? What's the inner secret here? And the best translation we can get for, di, for dikaiosune would be probably a paraphrase, something like, what is it about a person that makes them whole? Or like truly good. You know what I mean? Um, an old English word comes to mind like morrow. Like the morrow of the soul, the health, the rightness, the goodness of the soul. This is the very word that Jesus here is using. His audience would have heard this phrase. Their ears would have perked. He's saying this is what it means to be true. We might say true inner goodness. Now, a couple of centuries after Plato, sometime prior to 285 BC, somewhere in there, people, uh, the Greek world began translating the Old Testament into Greek. We call this the Septuagint. And the, the Hebrew word for righteousness, like in Isaiah and Amos and Micah, those places, is the word sadakah. Sadakah. And it means this inner health, this inner morrow that God gives that makes you right with God and right with other people, that helps society function. And that word, sadakah, was translated in the Greek text of the Old Testament into dikaiosune, okay? So basically, as a result, the two greatest traditions on your inner world, the inner world of the human being, the two greatest traditions um, of the human soul are, brought, are kind of merged and brought together in this one word, dikaiosune. It's both Hebrew and Greek kind of meshing together into this one, into this one word. 
So Jesus is not talking about the external world of right behavior, but rather the inner world of the human heart that produces right or wrong behaviors. You understand? Let me put it this way. This is very important for you to understand, for us to understand if we're, as we're moving forward. Jesus is not saying that as a follower of his, he's going to make you do certain things. Did you hear that? Jesus is not saying as we follow him that he's going to make you do certain things and follow certain rules and behave certain ways. He is saying that he's going to make you into the kind of person who naturally does certain things and certain rules and behaves in certain ways. Do you hear the nuance there? Very important nuance for you to understand. Some people have taught that this is about Jesus as being legalistic or a rule, so it can't mean this, so they do these gymnastics to get around it. In reality, He's saying, no, the spirit of Torah is real, but I'm making you into, a, into this kind of a person. Look at, he's just fulfilling prophecy. Let me read this to you. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. It's a famous old proper, pro- prophecy. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they, um, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Some people have thought, see, yeah, Torah is done away with. Nope, look. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, it's still there. I will put my Torah, but look, the difference is within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, uh, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they're naturally going to know me. In other words, this will be the natural disposition of the heart of mankind. You, uh, he won't need to compel you to do the law anymore. It will be how you think. It'll be in your muscle memory. It'll be embedded in your body. It will be Plerosi, it will be fulfilled in you because of dikaiosune living in you. Do you see what I'm saying? You'll have a certain kind of spirit in Maro where you just will do that. You will forgive. You won't hold a grudge. That's, and by the way, next week, Jesus starts, he, following this, he's gonna give us six examples of this idea of obey versus fulfill. And it's going to take us six weeks. We're going to take a week for each one. He's going to give us six examples to kind of give us an imagination of what a kind of human does living a certain way. For example, next week he's going to say, you've heard it said, he's going to start on one level, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. This is next week's sermon. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. There it is. He says, but I say unto you, and he's going to use that formula every time. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And you might say, check. Got it. Don't murder anyone. But he says, but there's something going on deeper in the inner world of of the human soul that causes things like murder. That even if you don't murder someone, it still could be alive and well in your heart. It's called a contempt, contempt for another human. Nursing a grudge is, is what's going on in the inner world that's causing these things to the point where you can even, you can not murder someone and still be filled with rage and anger and hatred and wrath and all of these things. Jesus is gonna get in there and he's gonna offend everybody in this place at least once going through this sermon. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a deeper righteousness here, a healing of the inner world. We were watching, um, I almost said Lord of the Rings, but that's not it. Chronicles of Narnia, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, because when we finish reading the book, we get to watch the, you know, the film. And one of the lines in the movie, this guy was describing to them the kind of darkness on this adventure that they're gonna have to overtake. But then he says to them, he's kind of a prophet type person, he says to them, you have to to conquer the darkness out there. You first must conquer the darkness in here. He says, each of you are going to be tested 
That's what he's getting at. Of course, I'm studying for this as we're watching this. And I'm like, Dikaiosone. That's what he's talking about, Noble. And Noble's like, uh-huh. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying he, God, Jesus, through interacting with him, is going to reorient your heart and your soul and your mind to where you will eventually, this, these things will eventually become natural, the natural way that you think, okay? You can do certain things and have your heart aligned with what you are doing. When you start following Jesus, he begins changing your heart. So again, it's really important we are, as followers of Jesus, he is absolutely expecting us to fulfill the law, the spirit of the law. Does that mean, you might be thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't eat bacon? <laughs> does that mean no shellfish? What does that mean? No. No, it doesn't mean that. As, and as, you continue, as we continue reading the gospel, you'll find out that that's, do I have to be more meticulous? No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying there's a deeper righteousness that's gonna fulfill the spirit that's behind the law. We parents understand this, right? You, we don't want kids that just follow the rules. We're hoping that our kids become the certain kind of people that become good for society, right? That it becomes intuitive, that it becomes... This is not... It's so profound, but it's also very practical. We, get, we actually get this on quite a... When we... Okay, you employers out there, when you're hiring somebody, you don't just want to hire somebody that um, does the bare minimum of what you've asked, right? That does just exactly what you've asked and then that's it. You want to hire someone that has integrity, that gets why, that's a self-starter, that has character, that's honest, that's going to go the extra mile because they actually care. You're looking for character, dikaiosone, that fulfills certain rules naturally. See? That's what Jesus is getting at too. He's saying Torah is not going anywhere. The difference is my spirit, as you follow me and interact with me, my spirit's gonna begin to form and develop and shape you and begin to write these things on your soul and on your heart so that you, you'll have different desires. Your wants will start to change. You guys, Christianity is about nothing if it's not about change. If God cannot change you, do not come back next week. If, you, if you've reached a stumping point where you're with yourself and you think, well, that's just, in, that's just in there for good. That part's just not gonna change. The God, if that's, if the God of Christianity is not worth your worship, especially with what he, what he promises. But at the same time, he does not say it is a come forward to an altar and he'll sprinkle some dust on you and you'll just be different. No. He says, no, you are born again, but as you follow me and as you interact with me, you're going to begin changing. And it might be two steps forward, three steps back. It might be filled with ups and downs, it, but you are gonna keep poieo, keep practicing, keep at it, just like with anything, with anything. Right? With anything. Even Michael Jordan he was born with a level of talent, but that guy had to practice and practice and poieo and poieo, and he had to do and do and do and do and do. Let me ask you this. Why do we practice the things that we practice? Why? What'd you say? I say, say that, well, to get better, but why do you want to get better? Why do you want to be the best? We're getting deeper and deeper. What'd you say? Becomes who you are, but how does it become? How did it, where do you start? Because you had a vision of who you could be at some point. In other words, this is what the Bible, this is what Jesus would call the heart. The heart is where the law is at because in the heart, please, it's not the way we think of it here is like this emotional kind of um, thing. In the heart, the heart is the place where you choose what's valuable in life. In, in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, famous line, same in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He says, seek the kingdom of God. Th seek first the kingdom of God, and then all this other stuff that he's been talking about will be added to you. Do you remember that? Why do you have to seek the kingdom? Why can't he just hit you over the head with it? 
Why does it have to be sought? Because something you sought is something you want. You value it. The kingdom of heaven must be wanted. It must be seen as valuable and, that, and that's just how it works in your life right now. You are doing, you are poeoing that which you deem to be valuable and that which your heart declares valuable is your true Lord and your true rabbi. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, I want you to set your heart on me. Make me the most valuable thing. And here's the thing. If you don't want it, you don't have to have it. I, I meet a lot of Christians who wonder, how come I don't, you know, nothing's happening to me or I don't feel excited or, or any of those things. A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times it's because they, want, they don't want it. Either, either it become like these traditions just become external. I'm just going to do this stuff. But you see, do, reading the Bible, praying, coming to church is a means to an end of who we want, Jesus. But if you come on a Sunday and it's just tradition and you sit down and you just sing the songs and go through the thing and do the rote thing and you wonder, wow, that's weird. How come I'm not stoked? How come I'm not you know, on fire? It's, what do you really want? What do you expect? You will do and you are doing what you really want to do. That's why the kingdom of God must be sought and that's why not everyone will find it because they don't want it. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of eternity, at the end of, the, of it all, we will get what we've been striving for and really wanting the whole time. That's the reality. So Jesus says, value me in your heart Set your value on me and all these things will be added unto you. You will start, begin doing things the more you let your heart be captured. And there's kind of, it's kind of a, um, uh, like a conversation. The more you do, the more your heart will be captured because to know Jesus is to love him. I promise you that. The more you know him, the more you, your heart will go, oh gosh, he is like I said earlier, he, he is the deepest part of you. He is that part of you that when you hear that call, you go, oh, that's right. Like a prioritizing thought, that's right. I do love you. That's the deepest part of you. The question is, can you feed that deep part of you by practicing certain things, by doing certain things, by being in a group together, spurring each other on to love and good works. Why are we here at our home groups? Because we want Jesus together. Okay? Why do we come to church? Because we want Jesus together. We want to know him together. We want to grow and follow him together. That's why. And we remind each other of those things and we practice those things. So Jesus is saying here, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of God... You need more than just reading the Bible and obeying its commands. That's not a bad thing. Those things aren't bad. They're very good. But you need even more. You need an inner kind of righteousness. You need the ideas that the Bible is getting at to seep into your heart and into the muscle memory and transform you into a whole different kind of person whose driving motivation is love, is love. That's what he's saying. That's what I want as our, for our group. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want. I, that's what I want personally so much. And I'm, I'm growing just as much as you guys. I'm, I'm right there too. I want to say, who's with me? Okay. Let's stand and spend some time with him. Jesus, would you please accept this feeble attempt to follow after you? 
And Holy Spirit, as we interact, you are the spirit of Jesus. You are his spirit. As we interact with you, would you change us more and more into the image of Christ? Into a new way of being human. Into a place of flourishing and thriving May old wants and old desires begin to fall away as we trust and obey. Trust and obey. And may we come into contact more and more with the deepest part of ourselves that say, okay, yeah. I know what I really want here. The truth is, Lord, our hearts, mine, uh, maybe more than any, is divided I love you, but I also love other things. And sometimes I get confused. Sometimes I want to follow after other things thinking they will give me the good life. But then I watch a film or I sing a song or I read your word and I remember the deeper part of me remembers and goes, oh yeah, I was made for you. I believe that's in all of us. I believe that's in every one of us. So Lord, we are coming after you. We are following you. Fulfill your instructions inside of us. And Lord, may we practice them from our own righteousness that you've given us. Dikaiosone, it comes from hanging out with you. May we start to practice things and teach others to do the same, that people would look at us and say, whoa, those guys are the light of the world. They're, they're with God people. They're Yahweh people. They're Jesus people. That's the life I was meant to live. Would you, would you paint in us a imagination of what that looks like? Would you give that to us? In Jesus' name, amen.